Short Rounds. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and first off, Merry Christmas if you celebrate it, Happy Hanukkah, or Joyous Kwanzaa if you celebrate those, and if you worship the ancient Roman pantheon, Dies Natalis Solis Invicti, or just Happy Holidays in general. And let's see what's in the stocking for you guys this Christmas. All right. So today I have a short round tying up a loose end from the Philippine-American War series. And it's all about one of the most exciting topics you can imagine. Military reform and defense policy. Heck yeah. I know that gets a blood pumping. Nah, but seriously. This is one of those things that's really important to history and military history, but can be really boring. I'm going to try and keep this short and entertaining. Because military history isn't just the history of campaigns and battles and soldiers. It's often the history of institutions and how they change over time. The U.S. Army that entered the Spanish-American War in 1898 would be significantly different from the army that entered the trenches of World War I on the Western Front 20 years later. And one of the most important figures in this transformation was Elihu Root, Secretary of War to Presidents William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt, including most of the Philippine War. The massive changes Root made to the Army and the War Department are known as the Root Reforms. So it's time for some institutional military history for Christmas. Let's see a sarcastic New York lawyer drag the U.S. Army kicking and screaming into the modern world just in time for the holidays. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want to fact check me, there you go. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So before we get to Elihu Root himself, we're going to talk a little bit about military reform and the state of the U.S. Army in the Spanish-American War. A lot of this I've covered already to some degree or another. So, reform. Large institutions like businesses or universities or governments or militaries tend to develop problems over time. Maybe a policy that made sense once doesn't make sense anymore. Maybe the promotion and recruitment systems didn't keep up with modern standards. Maybe certain key systems have been neglected for so long that they fail when they're needed. Or maybe the mission has changed and the institution needs to adapt to its new environment and shape up for its new policy. But when you do identify these shortcomings, they can be hard to fix. Well, that's the way we've always done it. Why do you want to change it? Listen, youngster, I've spent 50 years in this organization, and it's always worked for me. So what if it could work better? It works fine. And of course, the big one. Many people in this organization or outside this organization have a vested interest in the status quo. Any reform, any shakeup will run into interest groups who benefit from things staying the way they are and will resist any change. So there are all these obstacles And an organization will go rolling along, barely even recognizing how broken it is, until something happens. Until the organization has an emergency, and it falls apart. This was what happened to the United States Army in 1898 in the Spanish-American War, and it almost resulted in disaster. The U.S. Army in 1898 was woefully unprepared for war. 
For one thing, the High Command was a tangled snarl of red tape and prima donnas. The commanding general was Nelson A. Miles, who we have met before. Way back in Episode 3, Fight No More Forever, when he blocked the Nez Perce people's escape to Canada in 1877. Miles might have been a hero in the good old days, but now he was kind of a narcissistic traditionalist, always getting in the way of any sort of reform or progress. But even he wasn't as bad as the army bureaucracy, the various administrative departments of the army, like ordnance, quartermaster, paymaster, all these departments, they didn't report to the commanding general. They reported directly to the Secretary of War. So there were like 20 different line, lines of communication going to the Secretary of War. So all these departments were powers unto themselves, underfunded, undermanned, and constantly squabbling over minor points of privilege and prestige. So yeah, the army's leadership was just a big snarl of tangled Christmas lights. God help you if you had to deal with that this year, because I did. So when the Spanish-American War popped off, nothing was ready. There weren't enough weapons or uniforms or tents or medical supplies, and they weren't going to the right places. It had been 38 years since the Civil War, and just everything had just dried up since then. The bureaucracy was in over its head. They were trying to manage an army that ballooned overnight from 28,000 to 250,000, a tenfold increase. They weren't able to deal with it. Where were they going to get trained medical or supply or ordnance personnel on short notice? How were they going to manage railroad schedules and shipping schedules and the purchase of all these things, food and horses and equipment, without any staff to do it? And it got worse. Remember, most of the soldiers raised for the Spanish-American War on short notice were state volunteers. These were the products of the so-called National Guard, the state militias. The states were supposed to equip and train and screen these guys, but they hadn't. So state units showed up with no weapons, no uniforms, no training, and lots of guardsmen were medically unfit for duty, elderly or disabled or sick. The whole mobilization was bad, but so was the invasion of Cuba, so were most of the tactical operations. There was no plan. The landing was an embarrassment. Everything was completely disorganized, the tactics were garbage, and they were outgunned by the Spanish due to the shortage of modern weaponry. Then there were health issues. The overcrowded army camps in Florida and Georgia were a public health nightmare, and many soldiers died in Cuba of yellow fever or malaria. 385 Americans died in combat during the war, but over 2,000 died from disease, at least a 5 to 1 ratio, and that's unacceptable and at the cusp of the 20th century. Finally, there was a major scandal involving the army's rations, particularly contaminated cans of beef. The army beef scandal, yes, what it was called, the army beef scandal, occupied congressional hearings for the rest of 1898. So the Spanish-American War, despite being an American victory, showcased the army's weaknesses. This was like bottom two or three U.S. army performances in its history. It, it usually takes a major defeat for a country to understand the need to fix its armed forces. But the Spanish-American War was such a clown show that it basically functioned as a defeat. And at the same time, the new American empire meant that the army now had global commitments. It had to prepare to defend the Philippines or Cuba or Puerto Rico. It had to prepare for operations on the global stage. And this meant stacking up against other world powers. Compared to the British or French or German armies at the time, 
the US Army looked pretty freaking weak. They might not be lucky enough to be fighting someone like Spain the next time. Next time it could be like, I don't know, Germany. That was the big leagues. We need to fix this. The army was in crisis, but crisis can be an opportunity. It can make people aware of and supportive of the need for reform. So in 1898, President William McKinley started searching for a new Secretary of War to replace the old guy, Russell A. Alger, who hadn't really worked out. He needed a fixer to try and bring the army into the 20th century. He found Elihu Root. Elihu Root was kind of a weird pick. He had zero military experience of any kind whatsoever. Root was a lawyer, a big New York City lawyer, who had made his name working for Wall Street bankers and politicians. He had also worked for the federal government as U.S. attorney in New York City. Root was well known for his quick wit and biting sarcasm, but not his military skill. Seriously, he's a Wall Street lawyer. So when McKinley offered Root the job of war secretary in 1899, Root was like, bro, what? I would have no idea what to do. This is a Wall Street lawyer being asked to overhaul the U.S. Army, like hiring Vince McMahon for your heart surgery. But Root did have several qualities that recommended him for the job. For one thing, his legal skills would be very useful in setting up imperial governments in places like Puerto Rico or the Philippines. Root was also an excellent politician. He could convince elected officials and government bureaucrats to get on board the program. Root's character was also really important. He was well known in the Republican Party for just being a straight shooter. Like any good lawyer, Root was ready to drop truth bombs even if you didn't want to hear them. He was one of the only people who could tell Teddy Roosevelt that something was a stupid idea to his face. Like, Teddy, no, absolutely not. This came mixed in with a sharp, sometimes downright mean sense of humor that ruffled Teddy's feathers more than once. Root also liked to tease William Howard Taft, for instance, about his weight. This one time, Taft sent Root, who, as Secretary of War, was his boss when Taft was governor of the Philippines, so Taft sent Root a telegram reassuring Root that my health is in pretty good shape. Taft said, Took long horseback ride today. Feeling fine. Root sent a four-word reply. How is the horse? Elihu Root was a believer in tough love, though he and Taft remained close friends and allies throughout their careers. When Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft had their big falling out in 1912, uh, Taft ended up getting Root in the divorce. Finally, Elihu Root was a dedicated progressive Republican. The progressives believed in meritocracy, efficiency, and modernization in all areas of government and society. Reform was the watchword. Frederick Taylor applied it to industry, John Dewey to education, Jane Addams to social work, and Elihu Root would apply it to the U.S. Armed Forces. So Root entered the War Department on August 1st, 1899 at the height of the Philippine War. He would serve as Secretary of War until 1904 for both William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. During that time, he would reshape the War Department and U.S. Army for the 20th century. Historians call these changes the Root Reforms. Elihu Root wasn't a military man, but he could read stuff military men had written. One of them was Emory Upton. Emory Upton had been a very young Union general during the Civil War, noted for his innovative infantry tactics. 
he became the protege of General William T. Sherman, who sent him on a world tour to study foreign military organizations. Upton was especially impressed with the German military. Imperial Germany had mass conscription, professional officer education, a large standing army, and a general staff system that all combined to make them the most, probably the most modern military in the world. It put America to shame. Upton basically came back to America and told Sherman, hey boss, we need to be like Germany. But Congress did not agree. Congress had the army on a diet in the 1870s, a borderline starvation diet, and they were never going to approve something that extensive or expensive. So Upton wrote a long paper titled The Military Policy of the United States from 1775, where he laid out a series of reforms the army should take to make it ready for the next big war. But Upton died of suicide in 1881, and his essay was forgotten, until Elihu Root found it, dusted it off, and ordered it published. Upton's manuscript finally saw light in 1904. The military policy of the United States remains one of the most important works of American military theory, a guidepost for the future of the U.S. Army and the Root reforms. Root saw three of Upton's reforms as absolutely necessary for future wars. First, to create an army general staff that would plan and prepare for wars, so the terrible planning and bureaucratic infighting of 1898 wouldn't happen again, basically to untangle that snarl at the top of the army high command. Second, to build a ready reserve for the army when it went to war, so that the National Guard units didn't show up looking like a bunch of drunken Boy Scouts, basically have our backups ready for that big war. Third, to build a professional military education system so a couple of these generals might actually know what they were doing next time. In Elihu Root's own words, The real object of having an army is to provide for war. And that might seem, duh, obvious, but it wasn't. It was kind of radical because Root was saying, We're not fighting the Indians anymore. We need to prepare for a real war against our European power. That is our goal. How do we get there? So all these sound like common sense, right? Well, guess what? Root would run into opposition every step of the way. After all, every one of these things stepped on someone's toes, stood to reduce someone's power. And why you gotta go changing stuff, big New York City lawyer? Okay, let's see how this went. Reform number one. For most of U.S. history, the War Department had been a chaotic, bureaucratic hellhole, with the Secretary of War, Commanding General, and Department heads all wrangling for power and influence. Root's solution was to create a unified chain of command, a general staff subordinated to a Chief of Staff of the Army, who answered to the Secretary of War. There, easy, makes a good diagram, nice and neat, it makes sense. But the general staff policy had enemies— some Americans didn't like the ideas, thought it sounded too foreign, too European, almost German. Lots of congressmen were used to manipulating the infighting in the War Department to their own advantage, and they didn't want to see that opportunity taken away. But there was one guy who really didn't like this change. The Army's commanding general, Nelson A. Miles, who had a vested interest in things remaining the way they were. Miles worked to undermine Root and Roosevelt, especially when the Philippine war crime scandal broke out in 1902. Part of this may have been genuine, but part of it was definitely political grandstanding to undermine the Root reforms. Now granted, Elihu Root did play a part in covering up the Philippine war crimes, 
but Miles' motives were less anti-imperialist and more sticking it to the administration. Either way, Root outmaneuvered his opponents. He gathered support from President Roosevelt, a bunch of Civil War veterans, and progressive politicians before he drafted the bill. Despite the best efforts of the traditionalists, Congress approved the new Army command structure in 1903. General Miles was the last commanding general, his position to be replaced by the Chief of Staff of the Army. The first Chief of Staff, all these guys are guys we've met in the Philippine War series. First Chief of Staff was Samuel B. M. Young, followed by Adna Chaffee, John Bates, and J. Franklin Bell until 1910. The first really powerful American U.S. Army Chief of Staff would be Leonard Wood, but we'll get to him in just a bit. Root also revolutionized the Army officer career track. Before the 20th century, if you were an Army officer, you were either a line officer or a staff officer. You were out with the units in the field, or you were in Washington doing office stuff, and that was your life. Forever. But Root started rotating officers between line and staff, so they got equal experience in the field and in the office. And that's the system the Army still has today. A chief of staff, with a general staff planning for future operations and wars, with officers rotating in and out to gain real-world experience, and take their planning expertise they gain in the office back out into the force. Reform number two would be tougher. Fixing the National Guard. In every major war in American history, the regular army turned out to be too small for the job and had to be supplemented by volunteers and state militia. By the late 19th century, these volunteers were referred to as, informally, the National Guard. The National Guard's readiness for war was dubious at its best and borderline catastrophic at its worst. See 1898. Root decided that next time the army went to war, it needed a reliable, well-trained, well-organized reserve system to supplement the regular army. It makes sense. Ideally, Root wanted a centralized system like the German one, where the German government conscripted soldiers and trained them and had them in reserve units under the German army. But the National Guard was a major source of political power for state politicians, and they didn't want to see it fall under federal control. The idea of a system like Germany had with mandatory conscription and a large centralized reserve was downright repulsive to most Americans. It smacked of militarism and tyranny. So if Root wanted his reserve system, he would have to work through the very broken, very political, very inefficient National Guard. So how do we hold the National Guard to some kind of standard without pissing off every local politician in America? The solution was to tie funding to standards. In 1903, the U.S. Congress passed the Dick Act. The U.S. Army would pay to equip, arm, and train the National Guard for each individual state. But in return, the Guard would be held to federal standards and undergo mandatory drills each year overseen by regular Army officers. Also, while on active service, the Guard would receive pay equal to their regular Army counterparts. This kept the state politicians happy and got partway to the Army's goal of building the better reserve force. Not perfect, but good enough for now. Root's reform helped establish the modern connection between the regular Army and the National Guard. From now on, the two forces would share a common standard, at least in theory, which was a big step forward from 1898. Reform number three 
was in Army education. See, the Army just did not have a standardized system of professional military schools. Some officers went to West Point, but not all of them, and even West Point wasn't really enough. One in three Army officers had no formal military education whatsoever. It might seem obvious to you that an Army should, like, train its officers, but nah, you were just expected to figure it out. Learn on the job. Teach yourself. But then the Spanish-American War happened, and all these officers didn't know jack about commanding, planning, or supplying large forces, and they found themselves trying to do that, and not very well. No one had taught them how. So Root looked at this and said, We need to teach army officers how to fight wars. We need military schools. General Sherman had started back on this back in 1881 when he founded the Infantry and Cavalry School at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas to train young officers in tactics and operations. Root expanded this school into the School of the Line, which eventually became the Command and General Staff College. But Root and President Roosevelt also saw the need for a new school to train officers in higher command, strategic studies, military theory, and war planning so that the embarrassment of 1898 didn't happen again. So on November 27, 1901, Elihu Root and President Theodore Roosevelt formally founded the Army War College. This was the Army's first institution designed to train officers for senior leadership, and it became the pinnacle of officer training in the art and science of warfare on the strategic level. The first class entered the War College in 1904, and ever since then, the Army's senior leadership, generals, secretary of defense, most of them, have mostly been War College graduates. Root also overhauled the Army's promotion system. Throughout the 19th century, officers were promoted based on seniority, with no real standards or examinations of competence or fitness required. But Root and his fellow reformers instituted officers' examinations, including the examinations for enlisted soldiers to gain their commissions. Sir Root was helping to bring the principles of meritocracy into a very hidebound conservative officer corps. This was how men like John Pershing were able to jump over senior officers and rise to the top, a system that promoted based on merit over seniority. So those were Root's three big reforms, the general staff, the National Guard, and officer education. But he also oversaw little ones, especially when it came to armament. After all, this was the 20th century. The army needed 20th century gear. The Krag Jorgensen rifle and the 38 caliber Colt revolver had proven to be ineffective weapons for a modern U.S. Army. Responsibility for replacing them fell to Colonel John T. Thompson, who Root appointed as Chief of Small Arms in the Ordnance Department in 1899. Thompson oversaw the trials that introduced the Springfield bolt-action rifle and the M1911 Colt 45 as the U.S. Army's main longarm and sidearm. John Thompson, for his part, would become famous in a couple of decades for his Thompson submachine gun that he designed, the Tommy gun. Thompson worked closely with the great firearms designer of the day, John Browning, who helped to fill the Army's need for new automatic weapons. Browning had patented the world's first successful gas-operated machine gun, the Colt Browning M1895, which the U.S. Army and Marine Corps both used in the Philippine War. John Browning spent the rest of his life designing recoil-operated machine guns, along with just hundreds of other guns, by the way. 
Mostly, he, he designed most of these machine guns for the U.S. Army, like the Browning 30 cal and 50 cal, and the Browning Automatic Rifle, or BAR. John Thompson and John Browning were spending Root's period in office and beyond designing the weapons that would carry American troops through the world wars. Now, how successful were all these reforms in the long run? Well, Elihu Root was one man. He only served until 1904, and a lot of his reforms were still incomplete when he left office. He had gotten the ball rolling. It was up to others to keep it rolling. One of the biggest obstacles remained the army bureaucracy, led by the various department chiefs, who remained stubborn and downright insubordinate against the chief of staff. The bureaucracy's standard bearer was General Fred C. Ainsworth, a paper pusher extraordinaire with zero combat experience, but decades of office warfare to his name. Ainsworth was the adjutant general of the army. He blocked and stonewalled any attempt to bring the departments under control, and he had allies in Congress who were afraid that a more centralized army could turn America into a military state. There's always this knee-jerk fear of the army getting too strong in early 19th century and early 20th century America. But Ainsworth met his match in 1910 when the army got a new chief of staff, a guy we've met before named Leonard Wood, and another progressive secretary of war named Henry L. Stimson. Wood and Stimson maneuvered Ainsworth into forced retirement by threatening him with a court-martial for insubordination, finally breaking the power of the army's entrenched bureaucracy. But still, by the time World War I rolled around, a lot of Root's reforms were only partially complete. Congress and state governments and entrenched power structures had blocked or delayed or watered down many of the original ideas. The general staff was still relatively undermanned and unsupported, and army t- departments still clung to a little bit of power. The National Guard was still not quite up to standard, and state governments still resisted federal intrusion into the militia. And the Army's new schools were still getting started, mainly because of the lack of sufficient teachers. But a lot had still been accomplished in a very short time. At least the Army would have a general staff, educated officers, and a link between the Army and National Guard when World War I began. And other progress was being made. Theodore Roosevelt's administration had overseen the Army's first purchase of motor vehicles in 1906, and its first airplanes in 1909. By 1912, the Army was experimenting with its first motorized units. The first big test run of the motorized units was done by the Buffalo Soldiers. And by 1913, the first Aero Squadron was founded, led by Benjamin D. Fulois, Philippine War veteran. So we actually have something that's coming close to an Air Force. The Army still had a long way to go before it was ready for war with the European power, but it was a lot readier than it would have been without Elihu Root, his reformist allies, and the lessons of the Spanish-American War. Over the next three decades, Elihu Root became one of the most important figures in the history of American foreign policy. He went from being Teddy's Secretary of War to being his Secretary of State from 1905 to 1909. Then he got elected as a senator from New York from 1910 to 1915. As Secretary of War and State and as a senator, Root was one of the key figures in transforming America into a world power, putting it on the world stage as a force to be reckoned with. He was a big supporter of international cooperation and peace agreements, like the Hague Convention of 1907. 
Root even received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1912 for promoting international harmony throughout his career. Root believed that Imperial Germany was a threat to the free world, and so he supported American intervention in World War I. He and Leonard Wood were among the leaders of what was called the preparedness movement, the idea that America should be ready if, slash when, they eventually got drawn into the Great War. And after that war, Root continued his work on behalf of international peace and security until his death in 1937. One of America's foremost statesmen in the first two decades of the 20th century, Elihu Root did more than almost anyone to turn America into a great power on the world stage in both war and peace. A complicated legacy, but he was a complicated man. Either way, Elihu Root, more than any one person, deserves credit for bringing the U.S. Army into the 20th century, turning it from the frontier constabulary of the old blue-coated age into something we can recognize today. Reform is a slow process, and sometimes it takes someone with ambition, drive, and a feel for political intrigue to get things going. If he calls a few people fat along the way, nobody's perfect. Thanks a bunch for listening today. I hope you learned a lot, and maybe I made military reform just a little interesting. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and some additional commentary. I'm always on Facebook or Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Once again, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, or just hope you're doing okay in all this winter weather. I am freezing. (laughs) See you next year, or maybe sooner. We'll see. But on Unknown Soldiers.